Good morning. Our scripture reading is from the book of John, chapter 14, verses 1 through 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. This is the word of the Lord. I was out in Colorado recently for a pastor's gathering, and uh, I just want to say thank you all uh, for making it possible for uh, Tom and Joey and myself and other staff members to be able to uh, get away for things like that. Uh, it's really refreshing, it's encouraging, uh, and so uh, thank you for allowing us to do things like that. Uh, I was out in uh, Boulder, Colorado, and it was a little confusing uh, coming from Indiana because there were these huge piles of rocks sticking up out of the ground. I mean, a little like the hills that we have here, but much, much higher. It was just it was bizarre. Now, kidding, of course, I love the mountains. Uh, I, I love hiking and, uh, and biking. I'm, I'm not much of a, a skier, though. Uh, so all you skiers uh, can be thankful that I'm not out on the slopes because it means one less bad skier clogging up the runs uh, for you all who actually know what you're doing. Uh, but the little bit of downhill skiing that I've done, I, I really have enjoyed and uh, I've come to really appreciate the skill uh, and the knowledge that it takes to ski well. Because I get up on the top of uh, these majestic mountains, and for miles around you can see uh, the glory and, and the grandeur and the beauty of what God has created. And, and then I look down the mountain, and for thousands of feet what I can see is uh, falling down and broken bones and, uh, and pain. Here's part of my problem with skiing. It's counterintuitive in one sense. Uh, you start at the top of the mountain, and your goal is to get down to the bottom in one piece. 
To do that, you don't go straight down the mountain because you'll end up going 60 miles an hour. To get down the mountain, you, you slalom back and forth, any of you who know skiing. And here's the part that, that I struggle with. To ski properly down the mountain, you have to do what does not seem to make sense. You have to lean with your outside foot down the bottom of the mountain. You have to put your weight towards the hill that you don't want to crash down. And it goes against everything that seems to make sense because as a novice skier, what I want to do is lean into the mountain and, and find a tree and hug it to, to keep from crashing down this mountain. I have to trust the pros and the experts who know what they're doing. They know how to get me down the mountain. And the way that looks and feels safe will not get me where I need to get to. It will not get me safely to the bottom of the mountain. I have to trust the expert who has been there and who knows the way. The expert who says, I will get you safely home. Do you trust me that I know what I'm talking about and that you need to listen to me? Will you trust me with your life? I am the way and the truth and the life, Jesus says. No one comes to the Father except through me. That may be one of the better known passages of the Bible, but it's possibly one of the most comforting verses and also perhaps one of the most objectionable verses in the Bible. Because for Jesus to say that he alone is the way and the truth and the life, well, it, it just sounds arrogant to us in some way, doesn't it? It's not politically correct to speak in those kinds of terms today, especially not about yourself. You know, we, we wouldn't mind if Jesus said something like, I know something of the way to the Father. I have some of the truth that is accessible to all of us. All of us have truth, and, and I want to share the, the truth that works for me, and you can decide if it works for you. But that's not how Jesus speaks. Jesus says not just that he knows the way to the Father, that he is the way to the Father. It's arrogant and it's exclusive because he says, I am the only way to the Father. And, and he adds force to it, saying, no one comes to the Father except through me. John 14, 6 is offensive to all of us, isn't it? I mean, it's offensive Obviously, to relativists who want to say that all roads lead to the same truth, it's, it's offensive to moralists who want to say, you know, I'm no saint, but I'm better than most. I've not lived a perfect life, but certainly I'm better than those people. And then it becomes easy for us to look out at people out there that we think we are doing better than. Jesus says, no, I am the way, I am the only way. All the other ways are dead ends. They will false. So they will not get you home. Only I can get you home. Only I can lead you in truth. Only I can give you life. And you must trust and follow and believe me. Well, let's look at this text and let me give it a little context. The end of John chapter 12 is really kind of the great hinge that John's gospel pivots on. In, in verse 23, Jesus says, now the time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. 
And he says the way that he's going to be glorified is by dying, like a seed going into the ground that must die in order to produce many more seeds. And, and now he says he has come to the point for which he came into the world. Chapter 13. It was just before the Passover and Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father and having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. In some of your Bibles it may say he showed them the full extent of his love. Jesus is now speaking in this next section of John's Gospel, chapters 13 to 17, in in this upper room around the Passover meal to his disciples. He's explaining his death and, and what he is going to do and what it means. He washes his disciples' feet, giving them a great example of the kind of loving community they are to live in and create, as we saw a few weeks ago. He sends Judas out on his mission of betrayal, and then he predicts again his death in the end of chapter 13. Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. My children, I will be with you only a little while longer. You will seek me, but where I am going, you cannot come. Jesus is talking about his departure, his death to these disciples who are going to be left alone and and they have given up everything, their homes, their businesses, their plans for their lives to follow him. And now he's saying, I'm going to leave you. I mean, that's distressing news. That would be disturbing to any of us. And Jesus wants to help them and help us make sense of it, to put his death in the context of God's character and God's purposes and God's work. Jesus loves his disciples to the end, all the way to the cross. And as he is going to leave them, he wants to reassure them that he will love them all the way to the end, that he will love them to the end of the age, that he will not abandon them. And that's what we're going to be looking at over these next few weeks in this season of Lent, as we head towards Easter. Jesus is going to the glory of the cross. And he is going to be lifted up, fulfilling Daniel chapter 7, to bring glory to the Father. And that idea of glory has been one of the main themes of John's gospel. All the way from the beginning, we beheld the glory of the one and only, full of grace and truth. What is glory? Joey did a great job several weeks ago talking about that from Isaiah 6. Glory means splendor. It means majesty. It means weightiness and significance. It is the the, the shining beauty of God. Where is God's glory? It's not in his power, though he has all authority and power. It's not in his wealth, though he has all the wealth that there is. It's not even in the glory of the creation that he made, though he made it all himself. God's glory is in his character. It is his moral perfection, his goodness. It is his justice because God is a perfect judge who judges rightly. It is his faithfulness and truthfulness that he is reliable to do all that he has promised to do. And it is especially seen in his loving kindness, his mercy, his grace. 
Where do we see the glory of God? We see it in the death of his one and only son on our behalf. The cross of Jesus is where God fulfills his promises to Abraham and to Moses and to David and through the prophets. Jesus was faithful unto death and and gracious and merciful and loving to enemies of God, to sinners like you and me. It is in the death of Jesus that we see the glory of God. And that doesn't make sense to us, just like it didn't make sense to the disciples. Their leader is saying he's about to be executed. And you don't think of death and execution as winning, right? The glory is when you win and and when your enemies are defeated. You, You think that dying is failure. It's the victory of the evil one, right? I've made a mistake, or, or maybe Jesus has made a mistake. I mean, this is, this is not right. The glory is in being the winner, isn't it? Anyone watch the Super Bowl? <laughs> yeah, for the first three quarters, we were all sure that the Atlanta Falcons were going to win. Everyone knew that they were going to win. They were up by more than three touchdowns. It was clear that they were going to be the winners, except to the Patriots who kept on playing, and they come back, and they they won in overtime, of course. I mean, nobody could believe it. And and if, you know, if we have the idea that we're not going to win, that there's no point in trying, right, it means you turn off the TV, right? I mean, you've maybe been at games like that. The fans start heading for the exits, you know, halfway through the fourth quarter because this is hopeless, and there's no glory in losing. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to be killed. The enemies are going to destroy me, and that's where you will see the glory of God. And we say, we we don't see glory there. We, We see the victory of evil. The good man is destroyed. How is that glorious? Glory in self denial? Glory in surrender? And what's going to become of us anyway when this happens? I mean, if if they came after you, then they're going to come after us next. And so Jesus reassures them with these words. Look in verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. And I go to prepare a place for you. And And then in verse 27, which we're going to look at next week. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid, Jesus says. Do you ever notice the only time you say don't be afraid is when there's good reason to be afraid? Right? If a six-year-old comes running to you and says, don't worry, don't worry, that's exactly when you get worried, right? You never hear things like that when everything's going great. Nobody says don't panic when you're winning, right? You say those kinds of things when things are going badly. And so Jesus is offering these words of comfort in what looks like a failure. And his first word is this, trust, trust. You you believe in God, believe in me. Go on trusting. God is trustworthy in the middle of this thing that looks like failure. Go on trusting God. In the face of disaster, believe. Believe what you have seen about me. Believe what you know of me. 
And because of the insincerity and untrustworthiness of human leaders, we all now have cynical, suspicious hearts whenever anyone says, you can trust me. But God is trustworthy, and Jesus the Son is trustworthy. So trust him, trust him in this situation that you're in right now. Because he goes on to explain, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Look in verse 2. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? But if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. There is a room in God's house for you. That is what Jesus has come to do. And Jesus' death is the way, the only way, of God bringing you home to himself. And Jesus is not going to go and prepare a place for you without coming back to take you to be where he is in his resurrection and ultimately in his second coming. He is going to prepare the way for you. And so Jesus says in verse 4, you know the way where I am going. And Thomas doesn't get it. Don't be hard on the disciples here. They, the Holy Spirit has not come yet. We're going to look at that next week. Thomas doesn't get it. I, I, don't, know, I don't know the place you're going. I don't know how you're going to get there. I, I don't know what the way is. You keep telling me I know the way. I don't know the way. He hasn't understood what Jesus has said. Jesus is saying, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and I'm coming back to bring you there. What is the way? Jesus is the way. He is the only one who can go there and prepare a place and come back and then bring us to be with him there. He goes in his death and he returns by his resurrection and, and his second coming to take all who trust in him to the home that he has prepared. If you are going to come to God the Father, Jesus says, then, then you need to know that I am going to die to get you there. And I am returning to bring you there, to be with me. I am the way to the Father. In fact, I am the only way to the Father, Jesus says. Because I am the only one who can die for your sins. I am the only sinless Son of God. Buddha can't die for your sins. Mohammed won't die for your sins. Confucius couldn't die for your sins. You cannot die for your sins. You cannot make peace with God on your own. Only I can, Jesus says. And that's what he has done, that we might come to the Father through him. And my death, Jesus says, will change you so that now on you will know him, even as you have known me. That's what Jesus wants us to understand. And, and, and their troubled hearts are still confused. Look in verse 8. Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. They still don't get it. Because Jesus keeps saying over and over, if you have seen me, if you have seen the glory of the one and only, then you have seen the Father when you look at me. The Son's glory is not something different from what God is. Because Jesus is the one and only of the Father. If you will see God, 
you must see Jesus. And not just his physical body. That's not where the glory is. In fact, Jesus' physical body is, is really not even described for us. We don't know if he was tall. I mean, he probably was, of course, but maybe he was short. Maybe he had his hair close cropped. We don't, was he fat? Was he thin? We don't know. I mean, there's nothing to tell us that there was anything extraordinary about the way he looked. In fact, if he had looked different than an ordinary person, I'm sure we would have been told that. It was a real physical body. But that's not the characteristic that made people look at Jesus and say, oh, he's a chip off the old block. He looks just like his father. You see it in his crucifixion. You see it in his laying down his life graciously for the sins of his people. You see it in his faithfulness unto death. You see his likeness to the Father in his kindness and and forgiveness by which we have been forgiven at the price of his own life. When you trust Jesus in his glorious words, then you see the Father himself. Because notice in verse 10, there's this little twist here. Do you not believe that the Father, I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Now that's interesting because we expect him to say it's the Father who is speaking his words through me. But Jesus says the words of him, he himself, are the works of God. To trust Jesus is to trust the Father. And so listening to my words and believing in them is the same as believing in the works of the Father. And he goes on in verse 11, believe in me or else believe on account of the works themselves. Now some of you may have an NIV Bible. Uh, in, in the older version of the NIV, it, it rendered it believe in the miracles. Now the word miracles is not there. It's believe in the works of the Father, and and it's significant, we're going to talk about it in a minute, because I think it gives us an unhelpful understanding of the passage to put the word miracles in there. Believe in the works. Believe in all that Jesus says and does. That includes miracles. They're part of the works that Jesus does, but as you read through the Gospels, people see the miracles, and yet they don't believe in Jesus. Jesus is saying, believe in all the works of God that you see in me. Believe in what you hear me saying. Believe in what you see me doing. My ministry, my life, my death, all that I claim about myself, because all of it displays the Father's glory. This is the work that the Father has sent me to do. If you believe in just a part of Jesus... You know, I like the kind, positive things Jesus has to say. Or, or I, I agree with his ethical views. Or, or he certainly gives us a good moral example. If you believe in only part of Jesus' works, you are not believing in Jesus. To believe in Jesus is to believe in everything that he has come to do and everything that he claims about himself. And then look at verse 12. Truly I say to you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I did, and greater works than these he will do. 
here's where the wording in verse 11 is important. Because if we see miracles in verse 11, we get a promise in verse 12 that Christians are going to do greater miracles than Jesus. We're going to do greater. How do you do greater miracles than what Jesus did? Some people have demanded responses to prayer based on that rendering of this verse that I think is beyond what Jesus is promising us here because of putting the word miracles back in verse 11 and that we should expect even greater miracles to happen in our lives. God is at work. God does perform miracles, but we have to be careful with how we read these verses. No, Jesus is saying that his followers are going to do greater works. I mean, that in itself is an amazing promise, isn't it? That we would do greater works than the Son of God. What are those works? How, how will we do them? The answer is in verse 12. They will do, you will do greater works because I am going to the Father. Jesus could not preach himself as the Christ crucified for the sins of the world because he hadn't been crucified yet, right? We have a greater message than Jesus even had to give. And Jesus could only preach and heal and reach so many people because he was limited in time and space by his own physical body. But now his followers take his message and do his works to all the people of all the world in a way that Jesus himself could not do in his earthly ministry. I mean, these disciples didn't even probably know that America existed. And yet here we are, 2,000 years later, a result of the greater works and the greater numbers of people that, will, that would be reached because Jesus has died and risen and gone to the Father. Last week, Bob talked about us being winsome ambassadors to our culture. I bring glory to the Father by bringing more people to Jesus. I bring glory to the Father by inviting more people to come to the banquet that the Father has prepared and that he invites all people to come and experience. Is that the glory that I am living for? Because that's the glory that Jesus displays and that he sends us out to do and that the work he gives us to do. Verse 13, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Jesus has gone to the Father to intercede for us so that in answering our prayers, he may bring glory to God. How does Jesus answering our prayer, how does our prayer glorify the Father? Some of the things that we might tend to pray for sometimes. Jesus, help me get that promotion. Jesus, Give me a job that I enjoy. Do something about those frustrating people at work. Would, would you just deal with those people, Jesus, at, at, at my school, at my neighborhood? Is that how Jesus will bring glory to the Father? By giving us our best life now? By making everything comfortable and easy for us? No, your, your best life is yet to come. And even having your best life now is not about a full bank account, a job that you love, career success, nice cars, a big home, obedient children, a loving spouse. That was not Jesus' best life. He did not have those things. 
We pray, keep my family safe. Bring, bring healing in this situation. That's not wrong. I mean, Jesus, Jesus invites us to bring our needs to the Father. But, but is that how he brings glory to the Father? By keeping us safe and keeping us protected and never letting us go through harm. That's not how Jesus in his life brought glory to the Father. He did not live a safe, pain-free life. Jesus is inviting us to find our best life, to find real life in him by denying ourselves and taking up our cross and following him in the path of discipleship and the pattern of life that he laid out for us. What if our prayers tomorrow on Monday were not, you know, God, do something about those frustrating people or God, I can't believe what that person did or I'm just, oh, it's just unbelievable, God, you've got to fix this or, you know, God, help me make it to Friday or help me make it to noon. Or help me make it to my first break. What if your prayers were, what if our prayers were, Jesus, help me to bring glory to the Father by showing your sacrificial love to enemies. Jesus, help me bring glory to the Father by helping me reconcile with that person that I'm at odds with. Jesus, would would you be glorified by helping me care more about seeking peace than winning an argument? Jesus, would you be glorified in my life, looking more like yours, that that I would be as forgiving, as patient, as trusting, as loving, as encouraging, as generous as you are? What if our prayers were, were, Jesus, help me glorify the Father by living in such a way that the world cannot make sense of my life? That they look at me and they cannot understand radical generosity and radical humility and and wanting to see others succeed and get ahead. In giving my life away to love and serve and, and by caring less about what other people think about me. Because I'm so secure in you, Jesus. Jesus, I, I don't like what you're doing now, but I trust you. I trust you that you are good. And that you are in control. And and Jesus, be glorified in my faithful and joyful obedience to you. Jesus brings glory to the Father in all his works by his kindness, his love, his obedience, his patience, his welcome of strangers, his his radical self-denial. And we bring glory to the Father when our prayers, when our lives are oriented around those same things by which Jesus brought glory to the Father? What if our prayers were about radically trusting that Jesus is doing what is right in my life, even if I don't like it, and about being radically committed to bring glory to the Father? And what if I could pray that way because my home is not here? I have a home prepared for me. I have a home in God. I have an identity already. I have a security. I have an eternal inheritance. I have a family now. So that my prayers in my life don't have to be about getting those things. And now my prayers become maybe more like, Father, help me glorify you by being an obedient, loving, trusting child, just as Jesus loved and trusted and obeyed you. Those are the prayers 
that Jesus will answer to bring glory to the Father. So ask, ask, because Jesus will be able to do it because he has paid the penalty. He has opened the gate to come to the Father so that now we have boldness to approach his throne and ask in his name. And he will give it to us so that God may be glorified. And if he doesn't give it to us, it's because God would not be glorified in it. The Father will be glorified by giving us what we ask in Jesus' name. That is according to Jesus' priorities, Jesus' character, Jesus' life. What an encouragement to pray, you see. For when we pray in Jesus' name, we bring glory to the Father. Through the Son who has died on the cross for us. Let's go back to our text. Verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Is it a reassuring text? Is it, is it an offensive text? Well, it's both, isn't it? It's objectionable text that is also reassuring and comforting to us because it's offensive to our pride. It, it offends our idea that belief is a private, personal matter of, you know, just my own taste and, and not a matter of objective truth. Now you remember, Jesus stands before the Roman governor Pilate who, who wants to, and says, I have come to bear witness to the truth. And Pilate, like a good postmodernist, a good relativist, what is truth? In other words, whose truth? Who decides? Is there any truth that everyone must acknowledge? And Jesus' message is offensive to that kind of relativism because he says, I am the truth. I am the truth. That's a word that both Christians and non-Christians have to wrestle with. Do I really trust and believe all that Jesus has said? Jesus' message is objectionable to our idea that building your life around whatever works for you personally, whether it's true or not, that that's what life looks like. Jesus' message is offensive to the idea that Tolerance means giving equal validity to all viewpoints and beliefs. Because if God sent his one and only son to die on the cross for the penalty of the sins of the world, why would there be another way? If, if, if there's any other way, why would God sacrifice his son? There's only one way for sinful people, for us, to come to the Father, and it's through the Son. It, it challenges us then to examine whether I really have come to the Father through the Son or whether I really still am trying to come to the Father some other way. If you think you can come to the Father some other way, you are mistaken, and I tell you that in love. There is no other way. You may not like it. You may want to try and climb the mountain or, or get down the mountain skiing in your own way. But there is an expert. There is one who knows. And God is declaring there is no other way. Have you come to God that way? Through trust and faith in what Christ has done for you. If you've tried to come some other way, you will not get there. And if you refuse to come because you want to believe there's some other way, that is Deadly and destructive pride. You are telling God God's business. 
Do not listen to the evil one any longer. Come to the Father through Jesus the Son. And secondly, it's challenging because if we have come, it challenges us as to whether we really are living for the glory of the Father and doing the greater works that Jesus has told us we are to be doing. For if we have come to the Father through the Son, then we have come in order to bring glory to the Father through our lives. Just as Jesus brought glory to the Father. Ask anything in his name. And Jesus grants it to us. For as we ask, we give glory to God. Because if I am coming in prayer in the right way, I am acknowledging, God, you are God and I am not. And I don't know what's best for me. And God, I'm coming to you in prayer because I am dependent on you. God, you are the one who is able to give me what is best. I cannot do it. And and as we are praying, we are affirming, God, you are loving. You are wise. You are powerful. You are gracious. You are truthful. What What a motivation it should be then for us to be more prayerful. What is offensive to our pride is exactly what makes it reassuring to us as well. It's reassuring to know that Jesus is the way to the Father. And that his death is not a failure but a victory. It's deeply reassuring for us to know that Jesus delights to bring glory to the Father by answering our prayers. And it is profoundly freeing to know that Jesus is the way. And it's not up to me. It's not on my shoulders. I can rest in him and what he has done. Do you see the life and the freedom that Jesus brings? I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus says. And no one comes to the Father except by me. No one will get home any other way, Jesus says. Jesus comes to bring our salvation, to bring life, and to bring us home. And I challenge you and I invite you, if you have not, to come to the Father through the Son by faith in Jesus' sacrifice for you. And if you have come to Jesus, I I encourage you, keep coming to God through Him that the Father may be glorified in the Son through your life, through your prayers, through your works that follow the pattern that Jesus has set for us. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your faithfulness and for your love that we see in your Son and in his death and in his resurrection victory for us. We pray, Father, that each one of us would come to you through him. Everyone hearing my voice, Father, that you would be at work by your Spirit to move hearts to respond to the gracious offer of the gospel. And we pray, Father, that having come to you through Jesus, that we might come over and over again in our prayer and in our lives, that we might bring glory to you through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. All God's people said, Amen.